Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking of the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he charged them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but before many days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Before I try to draw out what I think is the main point from verse 8, I want you to look at another passage of Scripture with me and keep your finger in Acts 1. So if you would like to follow, perhaps flip back to the other book that Luke wrote, namely to his gospel. Just a few pages earlier, maybe 20 or 30 pages before the gospel of John, right at the end of Luke's gospel, chapter 24. You know, don't you, that Luke wrote two books, Acts and the Gospel of Luke, and and the end of, of the Gospel and the beginning of Acts overlap with each other, so that the same thing is told uh, in both. And therefore, I think we can gain insight, especially into chapter 1, verse 8 of Acts, by looking at something very similar in Luke 24, 47 and following. And so, with your finger in both, I'm going to refer to both of them several times, let's read a few verses from Luke 24, beginning at verse 47. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has made his appearances for 40 days. He is now about to ascend to his father. And this is what he says to his disciples just before the ascension. In verse 47, he says that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then he says, very much like Acts 1.8, You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now let's compare these two texts for just a few minutes. Acts 1.8 says that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them and they will be his witnesses. So the connection, power comes when the Holy Spirit comes, result, witness. 
In Luke 24, 48, it's just backwards, but the same point is made. It says, you will be my witnesses, but wait for power. In Acts 1, 8, the receiving of the power precedes and leads to witnessing for Christ. And in Luke 24, 48 and 49, uh, we are called to be witnesses and then told to wait for power. The same point being made in both, namely this. So this is my effort to put into a sentence what I think the main thrust of uh, these two passages is. It would go like this. Special power is essential for an expanding witness to Christ. Special power is essential for an expanding witness to Christ. Now, let me explain why I formulate the main point like that. First, power is essential for witness. Why do I say that? I say that because in Luke 24, 49 and in Acts 1, 8, that seems the clear implication. You shall receive power and you shall be my witnesses. So that the power seems to be an essential prerequisite for the witness. Now, that's, I think, made even more clear in Luke 24:49 where he says you are my witnesses but don't go anywhere yet wait until you are clothed with power why well because it's important for the witness the witness will not succeed so my first part of the sentence is power is essential for witness now the second part is this word expanding. Power is essential for expanding witness. Where do I get that idea? Well, both texts, again, seem to show that the power being given here is the power that drives the witness of the church, not just in circles around his house or neighborhood or workplace or uh, dormitory room, but outward in ever expanding concentric circles. Now, that's real obvious to us in Acts 1.8, isn't it? You shall be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, and then all Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. The same thing is implied very clearly in Acts 24.47, where it says, Repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So it just leaves out the middle two steps. Beginning from Jerusalem... Go to all the nations. So the point here is that the witness that is being empowered by the Holy Spirit is not to be uh, a circular witness that just stays in one place continually and evangelizes the same people over and over again. It is to be an ever-expanding witness until all the nations are evangelized. Now, the last part of this sentence is that special power is essential for an ever-expanding witness. Now, I'm focusing on the word special. What do I mean when I say special power is essential for an ever-expanding witness? It takes power just to become a Christian. Divine power changes a dead heart into a living heart, makes the blind spiritually to see spiritually, brings us from darkness to light.
crosses the Red Sea of sin and brings us to the hope for promised land of forgiveness. That's power. Anybody in this room who is a believer in Jesus Christ has been the subject of divine power. But this text is something more because these people were already Christians. These were very lively and believing disciples before the Pentecostal power fell ten days after this text. Um, what is your, what's your image of what they were doing during those ten days? I mean, Jesus rises into the clouds, disappears, and for ten days something is happening. And then Pentecost. What do you think? Do you picture them as weak and frightened and joyless and hidden away in a little room? Let's compare that image, should it be anybody's in this room, with Luke, Luke's image. 24, Luke 24, 50 to 53. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Well, now, what were they doing for those ten days, waiting for the Pentecostal power to come? Well, they were doing two things. We learn one from these three verses, or four verses, Luke 24, 50 to 53, and we learn the other from Acts 1, verses 13 and 14. That's the one most of us think about, right? What were they doing? Praying in the upper room, right? Of course, tucked away in a small room, praying for 10 days, 120 men and women. That's not right. Yes, they were praying. They probably prayed all morning. Or maybe all night. I don't know. But they went out to the temple every day. At least it says here they were continually in the temple blessing God. So they had great joy. They were blessing God. They were doing it in public. They were worshiping. They were praying night and day. And that is power. Nobody does that without power. Nobody prays, delights in God, worships in public, blesses God, presses on in prayer for ten days without power. I mean, if God withdraws his divine power, you go to the Dairy Queen or the movie or the football game or the TV. You just kind of sink into ordinary life. You don't worship. You don't pray. You don't sing. That's power. So the point I'm making here is when Jesus said to that kind of people, wait for power, he meant something more. He meant that there's a special power. He meant that there's an extraordinary power that will be needed if your witness is to be more than worshiping in the temple, praying in the upper room, being happy with one another. And evangelizing nobody. There's going to have to be power 
to break us out of the church, out of the upper room, out of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Do you see what I'm getting at? There is power that is going to be required if there is going to be an ever-expanding witness to Christ. So, let me sum up this sentence again. I believe the main point of this text is this. Special, extraordinary power from on high is essential for an ever-expanding witness to Jesus Christ in the world. John R. Mott was a leader in the student volunteer movement a hundred years ago. That great missionary movement that mobilized many young men and women among the schools of our land. He said that A.T. Pearson, a Presbyterian pastor in those days, blew the trumpet that got that movement started in the first gathering uh, in Mount Hermon in 1886, where D.L. Moody had called together 256 students. And what A.T. Pearson preached was the need for power. He wrote in the Missionary Review in 1882 these words. To do this work of evangelization in 20 years. So he's thinking toward 1900, just like we're thinking toward 2000. To do this work in 20 years, we must get more gospel, more vitality. The church has money, brains, organizations, rivers of prayer, oceans of sermons, but she lacks Power. That's what A.T. Pearson said. That's what John Armott said was the trumpet blast that got this movement started. In 1891, in Cleveland, Ohio, the first quadrennial meeting of the student volunteer movement took place. A friend of A.T. Pearson's, A.J. Gordon, gave the keynote address. And he titled his address, The Holy Spirit in Missions. And this is the way he brought it to a close. Now, dear friends, all missionary success at home or abroad depends upon the Holy Ghost. I say it deliberately. The personal preparation of the Holy Spirit is the greatest need in our ministry in this country and in foreign fields. And then he went on to give illustration after illustration from church history about how men and women of God have in their great desire to see their witness expand, called upon God for this extraordinary, added, over and above, special power from God. And God gave it again and again in situations where His church was ready to move in that power. Now, here we are in 1988. hundred years later, and uh, God is doing another new thing. He was doing a great thing a hundred years ago. He's doing another great thing. Let me, let me mention why I'm saying he's doing a great thing. Today, we have a new understanding of what the task of the Great Commission involves in terms of penetrating people groups, the unreached nations or peoples of the world. And therefore, the, the finishing of the Great Commission is much more refined. The contours of the task are much clearer today than they were for A.T. Pearson and A.J. Gordon. 
There is a quickly increasing number of Christian missionaries in the world. Today, there are 262,000 Christian missionaries of all kinds in the world. And if the same increase rate continues by the year 2000, there will be 400,000 Christian missionaries. Within those, the most remarkable development of our day, as many of you know, is that the receiving third world countries that have been receiving missionaries for these many centuries are now in an exploding new way sending missionaries. And there are now some 20 to 25,000 third world missionaries. And if the increase rate of those missionaries continues, they would reach 100,000 by the year 2000. If you come down to our little pocket, our little niche in the world, what we're responsible for here at Bethlehem, Noel and I now pray every day for 151 people who have come to missions in the manse in 1988. And in that number and outside that number, there are 60 of our members who are preparing for full-time vocational cross-cultural missionary work. And I got on the phone last night to call Bob Duffett, the campus pastor over at Bethel, just to clarify my numbers, what God is doing at Bethel. And uh, I said, now tell me, how many students went to Urbana 84 and how many went to Urbana 87? 30 students from Bethel went to Urbana 84 and 300 went to Urbana 87. This is what is happening in churches across this country, in schools, in conferences, and in the movement of missions around the world. But the words of A.J. Gordon and the words of A.T. Pearson are just as necessary in 1988 as they were in 1888. Namely, the need of the hour is power. If we don't have this clothing with power referred to in Luke 24, if we don't receive power from the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8, we will not make a dent in Minneapolis, let alone the unreached peoples of the world. We need it. You need it. I need it. Bethlehem needs it. The Baptist General Conference needs it. The evangelical community of these cities, which if it were anointed with power, would have an incredible effect upon this city. Needs it. Let me take the rest of the minutes we have and unfold for you this morning what it would look like if it came. And this is such a limited picture. We wouldn't begin to box in the Holy Spirit or limit Him to what He might do if we were to wait upon Him in such a way that we were clothed with power like this. But I have studied enough this week that I can lay out four dimensions of it at least, and then perhaps more later on. I'll sum it up, and then I'll take them one at a time. If the Holy Spirit does not come in this way, we will lack four things. Number one, we will lack deep conviction in our witness. Number two, we will lack self-denying courage in our witness. Number three, we will lack convincing or irresistible wisdom in our witness. And number four, if he does not fall in this extraordinary way, we will lack converting effectiveness in our witness. Now, let me take those one at a time, show you where I get them from Scripture so that you can hear the voice of God 
behind them and not just mine. The first one is this. When the Holy Spirit comes in this extraordinary, special way, your witness comes with deep and full conviction. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse five, Paul says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. See, there it is combined in two phrases in power. And in the Holy Spirit, and then here's the the defining or the result, and with full conviction. When you open your mouth to bear witness, the Holy Spirit having come upon you in this extraordinary way, doubts are banished. You know that you know that you know what you're talking about when you talk about Jesus Christ. All the uncertainty that might have been there before, gone. And you're looking right at people and you know that it's true. He died. He rose. He reigns. He's coming. Repent and you will be with us in glory. You know it's true. It comes out with authoritative, humble conviction. There's a reverence, a lowliness, and a power in the conviction that you have when the Holy Spirit comes down in this special Way. Now, let me insert a caution here, a warning. I I might lead you to believe, if I didn't insert this caution, that the only time you should ever speak for Christ is when you feel that power. And that would be wrong. If you if you infer from what I say, well, it's going to be pointless to witness to Jesus unless I feel this overwhelming, deep, awesome power. Now. Here's why that would be wrong. God uses people without that power to save sinners. For example, many of you heard Laurel Bissett's testimony when she came on here as the interim minister for children. Her testimony went like this. She never read the Bible, never knew anything about the gospel when she was a freshman at the university. And she happened to get a Christian for a roommate. Only this Christian was obnoxious. That's her word. She was a real lousy, no good Christian. Meaning she was quite sexually loose. And she was just irritable. And yet she had this compunction inside that she should tell Laurel about Jesus. And she tried and it made Laurel so mad. Because she was a better person than this Christian, she thought. And so the girl gave up and gave her a copy of John Stott's Basic Christianity and said, okay, I won't mess around. I mean, it won't bother you anymore, but maybe you'll read this. And Laurel got saved by reading that book. So please don't infer from what I'm now saying that the only time you should open your mouth to testify to the truth of Jesus is when you feel this anointing from on high, bearing you along with incredible assurance and conviction. Ask for it, long for it, but don't wait for it when you're given opportunity at work, at home, to open your mouth and testify. So the first effect of this special power is a remarkable, deep, full conviction about what you're saying. The second effect is this. When the Holy Spirit comes in this special way, 
there will be a self-denying courage or boldness in the way you witness. I get that from two texts. The first is Acts 4.31. It says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. So I conclude from that, with fullness comes boldness. With fullness of spirit power comes boldness of speaking for Christ. Now, here's the other text where I get this. In 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul says to his son in the faith, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. Do not be ashamed of testifying to our Lord, but take your share of suffering for the gospel in the power of God. Take your share of suffering. Don't be ashamed. Be bold in or according to the power of God. Where do you get the boldness to speak in the midst of shame, in the midst of criticism, in the midst of possible persecution? You get it from the Holy Spirit. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit for special moments of great need in the midst of opposition. If we are to reach this city, if we are to reach the world, we're going to have to have self-denying courage in the face of great opposition. David Barrett, in the August issue of the International Bulletin of Missionary Research that comes out of Yale University, estimated that in 1988, 310,000 Christians will be killed for their faith. If that sounds totally outside your awareness and like an inflated number, what it probably just shows is that we Americans who live in the Disneyland of the world don't have a clue of the tribulation in which millions of Christians live. In this world. Have you ever asked yourself. I'm sure you have. If you're a Christian. I don't think I could suffer as a martyr. Like I've read some martyrs suffered. I don't see how they did it. I don't see how people sing in the flames. I mean I've had my hand close enough to the fire. Or over a hot eye on the stove. How did they do that? You know what the answer is? The Holy Spirit came down. Don't worry if you don't think you could do it. I don't think I could do it. They didn't think they could do it. It's normal not to think you can do it. Because it's of the Holy Spirit. It says in 1 Peter 4.13, I believe, or maybe 18, somewhere in there, it says, If you suffer for the name of Christ, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There is a special gift for that hour. Don't worry about it. Just cultivate the kind of walk with God so that when the challenge is given, and whether it's a small challenge where you might just be laughed at, or a large challenge where you might lose your job, or a larger challenge where you might lose your life, trust God. The Holy Spirit will come down. 
And then you will have a self-denying courage and boldness with which to testify. That's number two. Deep conviction, self-denying courage. Number three, when the Holy Spirit comes down in this special power, there will be an irresistible wisdom about your words, a convincing wisdom. Who was the great irresistible wise man of the book of Acts? Stephen. It says in Acts 6 verse 5 that Stephen was chosen to be a deacon because he was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8 it says that he was full of grace and power. And then in verse 10 when he was surrounded by these uh, smart intellectual philosophical Jews from Alexandria and Cilicia and Asia... It says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. No matter how intellectual or brilliant or full of answers you are, you know, don't you, that unless the Holy Spirit comes down, and turns the event of witnessing into a supernatural event, people are able to so turn a phrase as to make the gospel sound foolish in the ears of those who are listening. And you want to pull your hair out because you say, that was an irrational thing to say. It didn't fit with what I was saying. There's no connection between what I was just saying and what you said. And yet, it worked in the audience. And the whole audience was made to scoff at an irrational non-sequitur That Satan used. It can be done no matter how brilliant you are. It's good to have answers. But answers don't save people merely. The Holy Spirit saves people. And unless the Holy Spirit comes down on a witness encounter. On a sermon. On a TV broadcast. It can be distorted, manipulated, turned and made a farce. By the forces of evil. No matter how true it may be. And so, the third thing we must seek for and ask for is that great gift that Peter had because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. They could not resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Now, here let me insert another warning. The warning is that I don't want to give the impression that everybody gets converted if you are filled with the Holy Spirit when you bear witness. Even though, in a minute, I'm going to make a point that more people do. The people that Stephen is talking to here, even though it says they couldn't resist his wisdom, none of them was converted. Instead, they simply backed off from this power, went outside, made a new plot. To accuse him. So please, don't always indict yourself. Don't presume the Spirit has not been upon you because a person that you're speaking to doesn't respond immediately. Or it responds hostily. Don't draw that conclusion. Because Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of power, full of wisdom. And yet, they weren't saved. Now, my fourth point, however, is this. When the Holy Spirit comes down, your witness does come more often than it would otherwise with converting effectiveness. 
And without this special spirit from God, this special outpouring, our conversions will be few. I get this from two texts. The first is Luke 1.15 following. This is way back at the beginning of John the Baptist's life. An angel, the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah, his father, that his son, John the Baptist, will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of power. And he, therefore, will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So John the Baptist had a great heart-converting, heart-turning ministry, according to the angel Gabriel, because he was full of the Holy Spirit and had the power of Elijah upon him. Now, in the book of Acts, there's another kind of man. John the Baptist is one kind of personality. Jesus was a very different one. Barnabas was another one. Barnabas, in Acts 11.24, has gone up to Antioch. He's a gentle man. He's an encouraging man. He, he helps the weak. And uh, it says in, in Acts 11.24, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a large company was added to the Lord. And I don't think that's an accident that that sentence follows the fact that he was full of the Holy Spirit and was a good man and full of faith. So it goes like this. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and the result, a large company were converted and added to the Lord. And so the fourth point is, when the Holy Spirit comes down upon a people, people get saved. We need this special power very much. Conversions are the work of God and not the work of man. There can be all kinds of machinery, all kinds of money, like A.T. Pearson said, but where there's no power, people don't get converted. We need that power. I need it. Do you feel the need for it this morning? I hope most of you do. I hope you're not content with just ordinary Christian life, as glorious as it, as it may be. Worshiping in the temple, rejoicing continually, praying for ten days. Glory to be a Christian and know the risen Christ and powerless in witness. There's a lot of us like that, aren't there? If Faith and David Yeager are going to plant a thriving, expanding church in Guinea among the Malinke, it'll be because the power of God came down. There's no other way. If the Baptist General Conference is to ignite with evangelistic fervor, it will be because God came down with power and no other way. If Bethlehem is to take the challenge of this great city to the west, and evangelize the thousands of people that go to work in those high office buildings down there, it'll only be because the Holy Spirit came down on this church. I hope that you share this conviction. I hope that you want a deeper conviction, a more self-denying 
courage, a more uh, powerful effect in conversions, and a more irresistible wisdom. And I knew that when I finished preparing the sermon yesterday that it would be seven minutes overtime, and that the most important question would not yet be posed, namely, now what do we do? And so I called Dean on the telephone yesterday afternoon, and I said, Dean, if you'll let me, we're going to scramble this fall series, and we're going to keep going with this sermon next Sunday. And he said, all right, we can do it. We'll just adjust the music as necessary. And so... The question that all of you should have in your heart right now, namely, what should I do? I mean, how do you get this power? Where does it come from? That's what I'll try to wrestle with next Sunday morning. And we'll just push everything or put something in the evening. I'm not sure yet how we're going to handle the plan that we had for the rest of the year. But I believe this is where the Lord is putting us now. And I, my my closing admonition right now is simply this. Would you pray this week for me? And for us as a church, as we gather next Sunday morning, I don't know yet what I'm going to say. And so I'm going to be studying and praying. And we're just going to gather here next Sunday morning and try to listen to the Lord. Maybe we'll we'll put together the service. I'm looking at Dean up here. Maybe we'll put together the service in a totally different way next week. Maybe we'll pray more right in our pews. Maybe we'll sing more. Maybe I'll give an altar call at the end and ask people who are on the brink of serious commitments to come and, and line up here and pray. You just pray for me and for the rest of us. Let's stand and begin that praying right now. Father, I believe there are hundreds of us in this room right now who are so hungry for what I've been ineptly trying to describe in human language something that is so supernatural, so precious, so glorious, so needed, that we unite our hearts right now and plead that you would come, that you would fill us, that you would pour yourself out upon us, that you would clothe us with this power as we sing together.